You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. If you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you're new here, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, the summer is kind of in and out, seeing different faces up front. And that's pretty normal for us as a church, um, but even more so in the summer. And so um, I'm just glad to be here this morning and preaching and really thankful for our series, The Life of David, and what we're learning for the sake of our discipleship and what God is doing, has been doing, is doing, and will be doing. And we're going to see that this morning, um, kind of toward the end, we're going to see, you know, the storyline of Scripture really come alive in this text. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm most excited about for us as, as followers of Jesus and those who take God's Word really seriously is to see how the Bible fits together, how it's not just a book of rules. That's what everybody thinks the Bible is, but it's not. It's a story. It's, it's, a, it's the true story. It's, it's beginning and end of all known history, and, um, and God has a plan. The, the, the technical term is the, the plan of redemptive history. History is all about redemption that centers on Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see that come alive in the connections to 2 Samuel 5 this morning. Well, as, as normal, especially if you've been gone and maybe haven't been keeping track via the podcast, it's good for us to set the context of what has been going on in David's life up to this point in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So let's just do a quick review. The first part of David's life, as you remember, all through the book of 1 Samuel is defined by persecution. And he's persecuted by King Saul. King Saul is seething with anger and jealousy because God has rejected him, and he has anointed David to be the true king of Israel. Just because David's anointed doesn't mean that he actually is the king yet. It's just a promise that that will come to pass. And Saul hates that. He's jealous. Jealousy leads to anger. And the Bible says that oftentimes anger leads to murder, whether in our hearts or in real life. And in this case, it was real life. Saul is hunting David down. Well, David's on the run. He's persecuted. Chaos in his life. Finally, justice is served, and Saul is killed. But unfortunately, like we've seen in the last couple of weeks, the drama doesn't end there. There's a lot of drama in David's life over and over again. And the kingdom of God's people, even after Saul is killed, David anointed, it's still divided. Well, why is it still divided? Because there's people that are still very loyal to Saul. And there's this guy named Ishbosheth, who is made like a temporary king of the northern part, because the kingdom is divided. And there's also the, the captain of Saul's army, and his name is Abner. And as we know throughout, throughout history, that the leader of an army oftentimes becomes king. And that could, could have happened here very, very much as well. Well, the short version is Ishbosheth and Abner both get killed. So there's really no more threat to David becoming the king over all of Israel. And just as a side note, 
showing David's character on the good side of his character, uh, he's not happy about Ishbosheth and Abner getting killed. He didn't orchestrate it. He didn't plan it. He didn't manipulate it. But they both get killed. And so now there's no credible threat left, left over from Saul's reign. And it seems like finally now, this division and chaos is going to be over among God's people. And that's what happens. We see that today in our chapter. This is our text for today. God's people are finally united. Spoiler alert for a short time, unfortunately. But let's, let's open up and see what happens here in verse 1 of chapter 5. So after all that I just kind of described happened, we pick up in chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel, so all the people of Israel, came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you, David, who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So look at what's going on here. I want you to, to see the unity that's implied in the text. What does it say? All the tribes. So that's, that's a statement of unity. Before division, now we've got unity. It's a really good thing. So the kingdom is, is coming together. They're united. Around David and see in him God's will that he would be king. And look at also what they say. Look at the, end, uh, the middle of verse 2. They return to God's word. They return to God's word. This is a really good thing. They, they say, and the Lord said. What does that imply? They're listening. They're listening and believing. This is Christianity 101. This is faith 101. What has God said? Do I believe it or not? And they believe it. They trust it by faith. What did God say? Great question. The ultimate anti-question from the devil. Did God really say? Genesis chapter 3. But they're rejecting that. They're, they're listening to the Lord right here. That you, David, the promise rests with you. God's word lands on you, and we're going to believe that. Really good thing. So they're doing great here. They're not ignoring God's word. They're hearing it and trusting it, not hardening their hearts. This happens so often among God's people. So this is a model of Christian faith. Let's keep reading in verse 3 and, and 4. So all the elders of Israel, again, statement of unity, all the elders, came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years at, uh, yeah, let's read verse 5. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah 33 years. Again, unity, 
kingdom united in contrast to the chaos that Saul brought about through his disobedience? This is a difference. This is really good. This is a highlight of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And so what we have in this next section of Scripture, from this point on, you could put a little bookmark right here if, you, if you're someone who, who writes in their Bibles, from verse 6 of chapter 5 all the way to the beginning of chapter 11 is kind of the pinnacle and the shining light of David's reign. Okay, Things are going really well. All right? He shows himself to be a really faithful king for these next few chapters. He's got military victories over God's enemies. He shows some really merciful, tender grace towards a, a crippled son of his friend Jonathan. It's a beautiful story in chapter 9. He receives some promises like some massive pillar of the Old Testament kind of theological statements land on David in chapter 7. There, there's Just as a side note, there's four kind of major verses that, that I was taught that I believe are like the pillars of Old Testament promise that relate to the, the, the unfolding of all of God's plan throughout history. And David receives one of those. And we'll get to that in chapter 7. It's beautiful. So it's a good season for David. And this is going to be our next four weeks here at the Vine in our preaching. Good news for God's people. So we can look forward to that in, in July. July is a great month for King David. All right? And just to let you know where we're headed, we're, we'll take a break and do our annual Madison Multiply series uh, in August. And then we'll do what we always do again with our vision series um, right after Labor Day. That's where we'll be heading. And unfortunately, in October for King David, things go south. And it's, it's bad. Not all bad, but it's, there's some real darkness there. Um, we still see David as a man after God's own heart because he does practice repentance. But there will be dire consequences for his lack of faith and him pursuing his flesh as opposed to walking by faith in God and his promises. So that's where we're going to be headed in the rest of the series. We'll probably be done with the life of David um, in October, early November. But let's get back to, uh, to our word for today. What have we seen? Kingdom united, right? No more chaos and division. God's people are united. The king that Israel said that they wanted is David, and the one that God anointed is David. But unfortunately, there's still some opposition. Look at verse 6 with me. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, Jerusalem, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. 
And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. All right, so there's a lot going on here. Super confusing because we don't have the historical background. Um, sounds really weird on the surface. So let me explain what's going on here because we have to know uh, some historical context to make sense of this. First of all, who are these people, the Jebusites? The Jebusites were a, a smaller group of the larger group called the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were God's enemies. And a long time before this text, back in Deuteronomy, God commanded that his judgment would fall on the Jebusites and all these other people, the Amorites, the Canaanites. You can see it here on, um, on the screen, Deuteronomy 7. I'll just read this quick. You don't need to turn there. But this is many, many years before our chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And God's command is this, speaking to Moses, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering. So they've, they've been rescued from Egypt now. They're, they're going to the land that God had promised them. But there's all these nations that, that hate the Lord, that are full of sin and no repentance, and God is going to judge them. So when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, there it is, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. This is the judgment of God. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. There's a problem here. God's people failed to do this. Way back then, command given to Moses, God's people failed to do this. Because the Jebusites are still here in our text for today. They were not driven out. They were not judged finally and completely by God through his people. So when we see in our text for today, David going up against the Jebusites, he's aligning himself with God and God's word. The ones who originally received this command. So Moses was faithful to listen to God's word, but God's people didn't do what he commanded. And now David, in our text for today, is going to take up that mantle, you see. And he's going to enter God's city, Jerusalem, and obey God's word by driving out and judging God's enemies. So we see David acting in obedience. And the author, the narrator, wants us to see that God... If you're looking for a king, look for a king who's obedient to Yahweh. And David's doing that here. He's showing that here. He continues to show that he's a man after God's own heart. Now look at verse 6. This was a weird comment. Um, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Well, what's this all about? Well, you have to know that Jerusalem is a city set on a hill. Jerusalem is a city set up on a hill. Remember that. It's an important theme. Important piece of data. 
And this is typical of fortresses or castles all throughout history. Why? Because you can defend so much easier if you're up on a hill, you can see attackers coming to get you. There's, it's much harder to do a sneak attack. So it's just good defense strategy. Well, the point here is that the Jebusites were in, in Jerusalem, up on the hill, very hard to attack. And so this comment here in verse 6, look at it. You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. That's just an arrogant way of saying, it's so easy for us to defend based on our position that blind people and lame people could defend us. That's what's going on here. Just a statement of arrogance. But let's keep reading verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. And this is kind of a clue on how he did it. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind. Scholars think this is just him kind of turning it around on them. Like, actually, no, you guys are the ones that are lame and blind, not us, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So we don't know for sure what's going on here in terms of, like, military strategy, um, but certainly had something to do with this water shaft. And scholars um, would debate this, this, this term that we have interpreted as water shaft in English can be somewhat debated in the Hebrew. But most scholars would say, and I'll spare you the complicated details, there was probably some access point through some waterway up the hill into the city, and that was a, a point of weakness for their defense. And that's how they entered the city and overtook it. So that's the whole point. Um, David shows that the arrogance of the Jebusites is defeated. And verse 9, look at it with me. David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city. So he's building a city. And it's expanding. And it's growing, right? Built the city all around from the Milo inward. So it starts inward and then it goes outward. And here's the, the, the narrator's comment, verse 10, which is very, very key. David became greater and greater. Why? God's presence. God's presence. The Lord was with him. That's not accidental. Very intentional on the part of the narrator. So, so again, we're seeing David's doing well. He's doing well. What have we seen so far? He's the anointed king. He brings about unity of God's people which is God's desire, unites him in the kingdom. He defeats God's enemies by obedience and faith in his word, in God's word. He establishes a place for them to live, Jerusalem, a city set on a hill. And what's affirmed here is that the Lord is with him. God's presence is everything. So you've got the people united. You've got a place you got the presence of God. People, place, presence. This is, you can track these themes from the beginning to the end of the Bible. God always has a people. He always has a place. And he always has his presence. Okay? But it keeps getting better. Look at verse 11. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So God's working here on behalf of his people, so much so that the surrounding nations 
Tyre and, and pagan kings, king of Tyre, Hiram, they look and even they acknowledge that God is doing something unique here among his people. The nations are looking in and seeing that God is doing a work, acknowledging it, honoring it, right? Building David a house. Here, have some stuff. Have my trees. Have some of my workers. It kind of reminds me of the, in the New Testament sense, the elder qualification that elders must have a, quote, good reputation among outsiders, So if outsiders, people that are non-Christians, can look at this man who's an elder candidate and go, yeah, I respect this guy. He's a good worker. He's got integrity. He treats people in the workplace with respect. Or a neighbor. Man, he's just active in the neighborhood. He blesses people. Like if people that aren't even Christians can, can vouch for somebody, that's a really good confirmation kind of thing when it comes to elder candidates. And that's kind of what's happening here. Outsiders are looking in and seeing and acknowledging the goodness of David as king. So David's doing great, defeating God's enemies, surrounding nations, acknowledging what God is doing in his life. David does great until he doesn't do so great. And that's just kind of what we see all throughout the life of David. He He does great. And then he doesn't do great. And that's kind of where it turns. There's just like a, a real kind of like pit stop of David not acting according to God's will. And then after this, we're going to see him go back to acting according to God, God's will. He's, he's kind of all over the place. Can we not relate to that? We see the human condition in David. Look at verse 13. <coughs> Excuse me. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. And I'll, I'll, I'm just not going to read those lest I slaughter all these names because I didn't practice ahead of time. That's a, that's a key. Like when you're reading Old Testament, you've got to practice ahead of time where these names are just hard. So you can see those names there. But here's here's the thing. We learned this last week when James Garcia preached a really good message. That in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God commanded that his kings not take multiple wives. And, and, And David's doing the opposite of that here. And the narrator of of 2 Samuel again is 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 showing this same thing that we saw last week. Look at where it says in verse 13, he took, quote, more concubines and wives. So first of all, David's uh, mirroring the surrounding nations. This is what the surrounding nations would do. Kingdom building through, basically, force of will, through sexual conquest. And this is a small detail, but I thought this was really interesting. In my study this week, one commentator said this. He says, look at where it says concubines and wives and the order of the words. Usually in the Bible, it talks about wives and concubines. But here it's concubines and wives, not the other way around. And we can't know for sure, but one commentator thought that this might be the narrator 
way of saying David was really interested in seeking the, the desires of his flesh because a concubine is basically just someone who's there to have sex with. A wife would be more, more formal and more different, but this is just him pursuing the flesh. And when, it's in, when the concubine is in the primary position and not the secondary position, that could be the narrator emphasizing this darker side of David's character. And we see this come to fruition tragically in chapter 11 with the account of Bathsheba. It's not uncommon for the narrator just to intermingle without comment. David's doing well. David's doing not so well. David's doing well. David's doing not so well. And that has implications for us and applications for us that we'll get to in a little bit. So even though in this section that David mainly shows himself faithful, we see a foreshadowing of things that will cause him grave, painful consequences. Even though there's repentance and there's forgiveness, there's still a lot of painful consequences for David that we'll see as a result of his heart being disordered and him pursuing his flesh and not trusting God and his promises. But let's close out chapter 17. I'm sorry, chapter 5, starting in verse 17. And I'll just summarize it for you just for the sake of time. 17 through 25 is that David again shows himself faithful, trusting God's word, goes on a military campaign, and they defeat the Philistines. He asks the Lord, should I go and defeat them? Will you give them into my hand? And, and God says, yes. He believes God's word by faith, and he obeys. And this is a foreshadowing of Jesus, the true king, who will one day come and defeat all of God's enemies and make all things right. This is a foreshadowing of the coming of the true kingdom. David was faithful to do what Saul was not faithful to do. David is shown here as obedient to God's word when it comes to God's enemies. He trusts God's word by faith and does it when it comes to unity, when it comes to um, the, the, the defeat of God's enemies. So that's chapter 5. So the question is, what, what do we make of this chapter for us living in Madison 2023? Well, I think one of the best ways to see chapter 5, like I said earlier, is in the whole context of Scripture. And we have to zoom out and see this chapter in that context. And that's where this gets really cool. That's where this gets really cool. There are links to this chapter way, way back to the beginning. So we're going to have to look back. And there's also links that go way, way forward to the end of the Bible and what it promises. So let me show you that as we close. Let's look back. It might not jump off the page to you, but let me help you see. This chapter marks a very significant landmark in the history of God's people. Essentially, the main thing you should be reminded of when you read chapter 5 is that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. God is always faithful to his word. Well, how do we see that here? 
Some of you might remember way, way, way back before this happens, God came to this guy named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He's the father of all God's people. He's where it all started with God making a people for himself that would be for the praise of his glory. And he came to this guy named Abraham. His name was Abram at the time. And he didn't show himself faithful. He didn't get chosen because he'd been an amazing worshiper of God. In fact, the opposite. He wasn't a worshiper of God. God just sovereignly chose him. And he spoke to him. And he said to him in Genesis 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So God's making promises way, way, way before this. Many, many, many years before our chapter. He's making promises to this God, to this guy Abraham, Abram. And he said, I'm going to give you a place and I'm going to give you a people. Right, I'm going to give you a place and I'm going to give you a people. This is one of the pillar texts of Old Testament theology. Chapter 12, Genesis. And what you need to see is that this promise to Abraham has now started to come to fruition in David. From Abraham, you can trace a line to King David. And now David, what's happening? There's a people. God has been faithful to his promise. They're united. And what? They've got a place. I'll make of you a great nation. That nation has come to pass. They have a place to dwell, a place to live, a place up on a hill to be a shining light to the nations. And we've seen that this morning. The nations have already started to look in and see, wow, God's doing something unique. This, this God named Yahweh, he might be the real deal. So the promises to Abraham are coming to pass. God always keeps his word. But at the same time, we have to look forward beyond this chapter. See, David built a city for God's people, but there's a problem. We've already talked about it this morning. David will fail as being the true king. And God's people need a king in the truest and fullest sense. One who is always faithful. One who is always perfect. See, David does well sometimes, but other times he fails horribly. He's a mixed bag, just like all of us, right? We're all a mixed bag. Jesus is the only one who's not. Jesus is the true king. And, and we march with him like God's people marched with David as Jesus goes about establishing his new city that is free from God's enemies, where justice and mercy will rule and reign with King Jesus. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that's to come. See, there's the, the, this city that David established, it doesn't exist anymore. David failed. But God's promise has not failed. There's a new city that's being established. That city is coming. And the book of Revelation, as we look forward to what God has promised, 
book of Revelation promises that city. It's called the New Jerusalem. God restoring what has been broken. God always restores what, what was broken. God always keeps his promises through restoration of what is broken. And Jesus is lead, leading his people to the final and fullest new Jerusalem, the new city. Look at what the promise is in Revelation 21. This is John receiving a, a, a vision of what will come to pass. This is God's promise. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And here it is. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. You should read that in here. God's keeping his promise. Coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Presence. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. People. City, place, and God himself will, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things, former things have passed away. The great enemy is defeated. So David foreshadows what God will do finally and completely in the truest sense one day as we look forward. So this new city, it's not by a flawed leader like David. This new city, the perfect leader, King Jesus. See, this is the Christian hope. This is the Christian hope. So our text today, 2 Samuel 5, way, way back, many, many centuries before we, where we sit right now, it foreshadows this reality that will one day be ours, Christian. Hear this. God made promises to Abraham that we see David fulfilling. There, 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 and in that, there's a foreshadowing of the true king and kingdom here. It's going well. But sin always messes it up. Like we're going to see. David messed it up. His kids will mess it up. But God always restores what sin has broken. And God's plan will never be thwarted. And so what does God do? Finally, God comes himself in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't mess anything up. And he starts, he recreates a whole new kingdom and establishes, starts his true city. Jesus came and said that until he returns, this new people that he established will be a new city on a hill. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, you should shine your light before men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. You can't shade it. You can't squash it. You can't cover it up. Jesus is restarting what sin is broken. Recreating what sin is broken. This new city on the hill is God's people, the church. And it doesn't have a geographic location. Now it's worldwide. All these cities of the hill, on a hill, scattered all throughout the world. So every tribe, tongue, and nation can come and see that where Jesus rules and reigns, that's where the beauty is. That's where the goodness is. His people would be the light on top of a hill. That's Matthew chapter 5. Like Jerusalem back then, God recreating it 
in his people now. And so we are to be that city on a hill today until that day when Jesus finally comes and this city of the church will become the new Jerusalem, the final city where God will dwell with his people forever without sorrow or suffering. He will have his people in their place with his presence. And that's the day that we long for, we yearn for. God, may it be so. Let's pray and yearn for it and place our hope in it as we journey that direction together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and how it shows us that you are faithful to keep your promises. Even when we're unfaithful, you prove yourself faithful. And we thank you so much for this. May this hope that you always keep your promises um, give us perseverance today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.